how do we approach this? I've no idea. I think we... <laughs> it looks... Can we go through... I think one we of these just things? go in. Yeah. Let's just go in. It's 7am and the author Penvolga and I are at Smithfield's meat market in search of mutton. We sell mutton? No, we ain't got no mutton, yeah. Anybody around here, do you think? Um, up there, up on the left. There's a sign, but there's nothing in the fridge. Just well, some I blood stains. I'm not a late riser, but I thought 7am was pretty early to go shopping for meat. You got some mutton? Mutton? Yeah. Leg of mutton? Yeah, or. Yeah, leg of mutton. You don't have to get it in? Rarely. Oh, no. The market is loud and full of carcasses, but as yet, we haven't found any mutton. In Oliver Twist, Smithfields is described as a dirty and bloody place where flocks of sheep are crowded into overflowing pens. Dickens campaigned against the slaughter of animals in central London, calling it a French folly. Today, the market is clean and orderly. It sells meat, but it no longer functions as an abattoir. Excuse me, do you have Good question, dear. We do, but I haven't got any. Okay. Yeah, it's a leg of lamb. Cheaper. Why is it cheaper? Why would it be cheaper to have a leg of lamb than a leg of... Supply and demand, really. Right. You can do legs of lamb, 15 pounds, frozen. New Zealand, very, very, very nice. Oh, it's from New Zealand. And where's the mutton from? All over. All over, yeah. Most, mostly the British Isles. Yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah. A, great, not a great seller, really. It's a, a big demand for it. There's a specialist butcher at the market that sells mutton, but we're too late. The trick, we were told, is to drink at a nearby pub until closing time and then nip by the market on your way home. Okay, so we've basically completed it. I think so. And no mutton. Well, potentially. But yeah, we have we, to get here at 5am. We have to get here at 5am um, and, and all be lucky. <laughs> and I suppose this trip even though it was unsuccessful, tells us that mutton, even at the biggest meat market in Britain, is available but kind of isn't, it's a bit difficult to get it's hold of. It's a bit of. niche, isn't it? It's a bit niche, yeah. yeah. It's still, in, and it's still seen as a bit niche. Would you like that to change? In terms of our kind of national palate, yeah, I think it should change because it's a great meat, it's a great taste. Of course it tastes like lamb, but it's, it's slightly stronger. If you're going to say anything, it would be a true, it was a between beef and lamb in a funny kind of way, but it isn't really, it's its own thing. Why and when did mutton fall out of fashion? Up until the 19th century, eating adult sheep was so common that the phrase to eat your mutton was synonymous with having your dinner. And what does sheep farming have to do with the origins of capitalism? Welcome to The Full English, a podcast that looks at English identity through the lens of food. This is episode two, a land of sheep and glory. Why capitalism appeared in England when it did is a question that has puzzled people for centuries. Why the English stopped eating mutton is a question that has puzzled me, well, for weeks. But the answers are related. Should we dive right in then? Should we do the kind of easy one first? So what is capitalism? <laughs> yes. Well, compared to the others, it is probably the easiest one, relatively. I'm speaking to Maya Pal, a lecturer at Oxford Brookes University. She's an expert on the what, where, when and why of capitalism. So 
I guess the one important thing to always say about what is capitalism um, is that a common mistake is to always assume it's just about greedy profit making. Uh, I think an easy way to think about it is about it's about the social reproduction of human beings, so the survival of populations um, based on the production of goods and services for a profit, obviously, but also on the production of labour power as a commodity. And what we mean by that is basically work. So human beings have to work to survive. Uh, they have to offer themselves on the job market so as to get money to buy goods and services they need from other markets. Um, and that market dependence is essential. It's, it's actually more than essential. It has to be imperative for there to be a capitalism system in place. So if people could get food, if they can trade or survive by other means than through market, then it's not quite capitalist market or the capitalist market hasn't become predominant over other forms of production. So it's a unique system. Uh, and that's also something that tends to be forgotten that people will just assume it's, it's been with us for a very long time, forever even, or in various latent forms. But actually, it's a really unique system that requires quite specific processes. But basically, it means people losing access to land, common land. Under capitalism, you can't get by on the resources you or your community possess. Instead, you have to engage with profit-making markets. And for most of us, that will include selling your labour in order to buy your daily bread. It can be a bit abstract because people think, well, there's always been markets, like concrete markets. People would go to a marketplace and buy food, right? That has existed for hundreds, thousands of years. So, you know, just the instance of a market is not something new. But it's the fact that production for a market becomes the main impetus, right? So that producers, peasants, People who are actually, you know, tilling the land or producing food or, 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 or raising cattle, etc., are doing it through dependence on what's happening on the market, i.e. prices. The fluctuations of demand uh, on the market of prices, of specific conditions, of various actors along the chain, the supply chain, right? Who are the merchants buying uh, their products? Uh, where are they selling them to, etc.? So all those conditions come into place. Think of it like this. Rather than growing turnips in your garden and trading some of your turnips for carrots, it's growing turnips in someone else's garden, the owner of which determines whether to grow them and whether to hire you to do so according to the market and then being paid a wage to grow this other person's turnips. It's only with that wage will you be able to buy turnips of your own. The key thing here is to understand enclosures, what it means and what it happens. This is George Cominal, a professor at York University in Canada and an expert on the origins of capitalism. And this is where sheep come in. In the aftermath of the Black Death, we begin to get the first signs of enclosure. Now, there are variations on this, but all of Western Europe is pretty much characterized by what's referred to as the open field system of production. That means villages were tightly regulated with respect to what could be produced, when and how. Every single act was a matter of custom, and custom was law, literally. But when the population suddenly dropped to 25% of what it had been, or at most 50% of what it had been, it threw everything out of whack. And this is the period where you begin to get enclosure. And of course, if you think about where was it that they first began to notice enclosures? Well, in the higher reaches 
of the Yorkshire Dales. What happened? Well, the population drops catastrophically and people are lured away from their scrabbling on hilltops to go down into the fertile river valleys. So where there had been fully settled communities, townships, you know, with, with custom controlling production, there's now an empty hilltop. And what do you do with an empty hilltop? You bring in the sheep. And, you know, you bring in a few thousand sheep, you only need a couple of shepherds to take care of them. And it's a very profitable enterprise. But it completely is different from the type of production that had been there before. George is describing a situation in which areas of common land in England went from being controlled by custom to being controlled by private ownership for the profitable farming of sheep. Where commoners' lives in the Middle Ages were once regulated by their feudal masters, combined by common laws and customs, their lives began to be increasingly disrupted by private profit-making, specifically to produce wool. This important shift is taking place in the late 14th and 15th centuries, particularly as the Black Death helped to clear the way for these new patterns of land ownership and for methods of farming which integrated sheep and corn, mainly wheat. This is the whole point. As population began to grow again, nobody thought that what they should do was reintroduce the open fields. Once the traditional structure of com uh, common practices had disappeared, people took uh, individual initiative. And now what happened is that the profitability of this sheep and corn farming, once it became clear how much more productive it really was, the enclosures now not only continued, but they spread further and further as more and more people, lords primarily, wanted to have more uh, exclusively private property uh, in their hands and the market for mutton and for wool, th that was growing. There was a lot of economic demand for sheep and their products. And in fact, that same structure of, you know, what was called improved agriculture became the basis for self-sustaining population growth into the late modern age. And, and the whole point is that this transformation is, is kind of fundamental in its effect. So this process of dispossession was gradually set in motion through various ways of enclosures, which happens kind of between the 14th and 18th centuries. There are different waves. It's quite a, it's quite a gradual process. But the most important period for enclosures is the 17th century. Um, and by 1700, we've got 70% of England being enclosed. That's it's obviously an estimated figure, right? But, you know, by the end of the 17th century, we are, you know, England has moved to uh, being enclosed rather than not. If you go to the House of Lords, uh, you'll see that there's the throne at one end and just in front of the throne, there's what looks like a very large red Ottoman stroke sofa. This is Susan Rose. She wrote a book on how wool made England rich and she's describing the wool sack in Parliament. It, it's in fact, the seat of the Speaker of the House of Lords nowadays, it used to be the Lord Chancellor who sat on it, but now it's the Speaker of the House of Lords. And as I say, it looks like a large, squashy uh, red sofa with a kind of backrest in the middle. And it was put there really as a symbol of the fact that the trade in raw wool was the basis of the wealth of the country. Mm -hmm. So how did wool make England rich? 
And when? The first records of a trade in, war, in raw wool um, are from Anglo-Saxon times before the Norman Conquest. The um, uh, Anglo-Saxons were exporting, in fact, not, not so much raw wool as, as a, apparently a, they had a good line in cloaks. And they were exporting uh, woolen cloaks to Charlemagne, to his Charlemagne's uh, France. By the 15th century, the cloth trade had taken, uh, was more important than the wool trade. But um, together, the cloth and wool trade customs duties made up a, a hefty proportion of the royal income. Its economic importance largely came from the fact that it produced an elastic form of income from the, for the crown. If you compare France and England, the French king was, by all accounts, ever so much richer than the king of England. He had a, a much larger territory with much more varied agriculture and, and products. But the fact was his control over his more remote provinces was not strong and he had it was very difficult for him to tax the country to produce the kind of uh, income that you need to to wage war because if you like the main function of medieval kings was either to wage war or to defend the country against war in contrast to france england was relatively centralized and it had the benefit of raising tax revenue for improving the wool trade. This, combined with the fact that Parliament was stuffed full of landowners who benefited from the wool economy, meant that the wool trade was encouraged, and this in turn meant that the wool economy percolated through English politics and culture. So you, you got a, a political um, system which had a large mercantile element in it, and which was a powerful mercantile element because the English nobility had no inhibitions against indulging in, in buying and selling sheep and running big sheep flocks. They're quite happy to do that. You even got the situation where by the time you get to um, the 16th century, you can see that those village people who'd managed to hang on did have sheep, and sold the fleeces. So you had an, an element of commerce and a participation in, in what was a, a, a pretty well large market going right down to the bottom of society, as well as involving the upper levels of society. And that, uh, in, in my view anyway, produced a different mindset from other European nations, where participation in the market was not so widely spread. And this, you know, affected the, the kind of politics that developed. You're now listening to the Full English Podcast with Lewis Bassett and music made by myself, Forrest DLG. If you like what you hear, consider showing your support for the show over at patreon.com forward slash full English. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. So because of the boom in the late medieval wool trade, people are eating a lot of sheep, like grown-up sheep, not lamb. They're also making candles from the fat, or tallow, and of course, sheep's milk and cheese. 
The drive for wool and the enclosures also led to more land being used to rear cows. Britain was very much a nation of meat eaters and foreign observers when they came to the country and then went back home or, or wrote letters to people back home or, or printed books about their travels, always marked on you know, the vast quantities of meat that they were eaten in cookshops and chop houses, like the one we're currently in. This is Ben Rogers, who we met in episode one at the Quality Chop House in London. Britain was a very affluent country by global and European standards at, at that point, and you know, meat was part of that. And I think it, it's all traceable back to the closures, which were first of all about enclosing land for um, wool production, um, but that produced, you know, meat, and then it was a sort of short hop from that to, to rearing cows as well. As Ben tells me, the English were famous for roasting their beef and mutton on great spits by open fires, or at home on spits powered by clockwork, or even sometimes spits driven by dogs. There was a technique. It was not. It was not about roasting it in the way that we understand it. You know, which is actually not. We you know we don't really roast it. We actually sort of part roast, part steam it. You know, the way we do that we do do meat. It was about putting it in front of a of a fire and turning on a spit. You know. There was a sort of you know series of technologies that were developed at this time to make roasting your your, your, your meat easier, including uh, a sort of clockwork spit and a very clever device which involved putting a, a dog in a, a little, like a hamster wheel, but for dogs. So and the dog would, 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 would run around the wheel and turn the roast. You know, this was a sort of, this, this was a bit like having a um, fridge or an oven or, dish or, a, or a washing machine. It was pretty much a sort of staple of every 17th century English household. Well, not every household, but certainly in the households of the very rich and often in the homes of tenant farmers or yeomen, who as former peasants had benefited from the privatisation of land and who could in turn afford to hire their own labourers. Eventually, in the cities and towns of the 17th century, the figure of the free-born, beef-eating yeoman played a central role in how the English middle class viewed themselves. Tales of the strength and good standing of medieval yeomen are central to the proto-nationalism of this time. But to get to this point wasn't straightforward. As Maya mentioned, many of those who had their access to common land removed resisted the change. There were uprisings and riots across the areas where enclosures took place. There was legislation from Parliament both to promote enclosure and legislation meant to restrain it. And in the early 16th century, there was widespread panic about enclosure and the growth of sheep runs. Writing at that time, Thomas More referred to this in his book Utopia. Your sheep, Thomas More wrote, that will want to be so meek and tame, and so small eaters, now, as I hear say, become so great devourers, and so wild that they eat up and swallow down the very men themselves. Sheep were seen as devouring men. And I think people might think of capitalism as first industrial capitalism, right? I mean, the, the big factories, the big mills, you know, intensive labour. Um, but that's, that's more the end part of the process. And before we have these agricultural transformations that are happening based on enclosures, on dispossession and on sheep farming, really transforming the way people relate to their, to their basic means of survival. So people didn't just go into industries, into factories and towns uh, for no reason. They went there because they'd been dispossessed from their land. But men were devouring sheep as well. In fact, the rise of wool farming made eating mutton so common that references to it litter English literature from Shakespeare to Jane Austen. But then, as many of you listening will know from your own diets, it almost disappears. You know, in the, in the 19th century, everybody ate mutton. 
it wasn't the, the meat of the poor. It was the meat of the kind of middle, the normal middle class table. It was the most common meat. And people didn't even talk about lamb. But I think, um, I mean, I suspect what happened is when the, wool, the, when the bottom fell out of the wool market, what's the point of growing sheep up to full size, you know, and you, you're not getting anything for their fleeces. And also, I think a kind of around, in the middle of the century, sheep breeding enabled lambs to kind of just put on weight much faster. While wool farming may have created the conditions for industrial capitalism, once factory production came along, raising sheep for wool failed to make much sense, particularly as cotton poured into northern England from the slave plantations in America. And if, as a sheep farmer, wool is no longer your objective, then why raise sheep any longer than is profitable? Consider the fact that a chicken can live for around six years, but they are typically killed for meat at the age of six weeks. Sheep can live for up to 12 years, but are slaughtered for meat at around six months. And so once England lost its interest in wool, our taste for mutton was replaced by a taste for lamb. How you doing, Matt? Hi, hello. I reckon parking here tonight, that'd be right. I've come to Cornwall with my partner, Eve, to visit the farm of Matt Chatfield. Unlike conventional sheep farmers who raise their flocks for lamb, Matt is focused on making delicious tasting mutton for high-end retailers and restaurants. So this is Lulu. Uh, Hi, Lulu. Right, mate. Uh, oh my God. Why is she right. so friendly with you? Oh, she's real bit barricade, buddy. Can I touch Lulu? Yeah, of course you can. She's pretty Hi, cool. She'd like it if we had some food. Hi. And, that, and that's uh, Ting. Ting. This is Jane. And then that's Molly, who's beautiful. The ones that I get particularly into, I keep, really. So, like Lulu, I bought 10 identical sheep to her last year at the market. They would have gone to slaughter the next day. Bought yeah. them. Nine of them were stayed at the other side of the field. She just came running up to me. So basically, I was like, I just can't ever kill that. It's like kind of like a retirement community. Yeah, I'm just pretty chilled, isn't it? If you're a sheep, it's pretty... My, my rule number one is I have a brilliant retirement. Rule number two is flavour. And rule number three is that I work in balance with nature. So, so basically, with my system, it's like, you know, I get these old sheep. Mm-hmm. Of course, you don't bite. Um, and we get the sheep that are too old for breeding anymore mm. or meant to be or the, for some reason the farmers decided that they're no longer fit for breeding so say you get 100 sheep mm-hmm. every year and normally a farmer will replace 50% of his flock yeah. so they might have had problems like you know um, sometimes they have a prolapse when they give birth or the other you know they can only give milk on one side mm. or they just might be terrible mums um, mm. you know so in a farming system if it creates too much hassle then you know it just creates inefficiency so they, they just replace them so I buy them those, and then I try and keep them for like a, well, three to six months, fatten them on grass, put some fat on them, and then obviously hang them and sell them. So it's a bit of a new thing. What With my system, I want to put fat on as quickly as possible. Yeah. And the way that sheep works is they'll go out graze. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll then go into their first stomach, comes back, and then they chew. They chew their cud, yeah. so it breaks it down further. And then it goes into the series of four stomachs, like the rumen, where it ferments. Mm. Um, but my thinking is, once it goes into the rumen... They like, you want them flying flat out and just fermenting. 
and the more relaxed they are, the more they ferment, and the more nutrients they go into building fat. But also, you know, you, and flavour. Yeah. So my sheep, you, what I really plan for is them to be absolutely zonked out to the point you actually think they're dead. You have to then <laughs> go up quite close to them before they jump up. Yeah. And then I think that you know that's quite a good system. What Matt is doing is making flavourful mutton, but he calls it kulyor. I asked him why. Basically, everyone calls it cow sheep. So sheep that or cows that aren't going to breed anymore and going to go to slaughter, they're picked out as cow cows or cow sheep. Um, and then basically, your is the colloquial name for you in this area. So very much like Devon focused. And um, you basically find there's different names for you around the country, but they all seem to be your or yao or something. So around here, it's um, cow your. We we bake the fat. Mm-hmm and we kind of infuse it with uh, aromatics and then we poach different parts of the meat in its own fat because there's so much fat. Mm-hmm. This is Jeremy Chan, head chef at Okoye. He's also down in Cornwall visiting Matt. We use the fat in uh, other recipes too. We use it to base fried chicken, which wow. is incredible to have beautiful fried chicken with uh, aged sheep fat. Um, it's a pretty interesting product though, an interesting type of meat, you know, like a retired, like older sheep that can be treated like a really luxury, beautiful product. And um, so, yeah, to cook it, like, you know, whole on the bone, like that is something very kind of involved and uh, respectful of all the work that's gone into uh, rearing the animal and, and its life, I guess. And how can that not sound delicious? Because honestly, it really is. Mutton is delicious. When setting out to explore the rise and fall of mutton in England, I had assumed that the English had more or less stopped eating it. But then, was that even true? Perhaps that depends on who you count as English. Boneless meat, chicken chicken grazing, tatka dal, this small fish, brain, cow brain, dal buna, tatka dal. Right. Which one are you looking, sir? Master Takunta recommend, Robert. Um, this is like, have you ever had, it's like a citrus fruit that's quite mm. bitter. I think this is, I kind of want you to try it, but it's like a bitter uh, citrusy fruit. Uh, but it's got a really interesting flavour as well with a fish. I'd love to try that, yeah, that yeah. sounds great, yeah. Uh, but lumbago sauce, I don't know what it's Okay, that's fine. I've come to Brick Lane in London to meet Rez, a chef who cooks Bangladeshi food in a traditional way at his pop-up Nanizis. The pop-up is named after his grandma. I was 18, I didn't really know how to cook and stuff, and uh, my grandma was just like, okay, come to my house and um, I'll teach you how to make a few things. So she taught me the basics, along with my mum by, by my side as well. And um, yeah, so that's kind of what I went off to when I went into university. But I mean, I got stuck plenty of times. I just either call my mum or my grandma, and they'll be quick to be like, nope, you did that step wrong, you need to go back, or you need to do it like this. And so I'm still learning how to properly cook it, because, you know, these women have been cooking for 20 plus years. So they've absolutely aced the cuisine. For Rez, as for many people of Bangladeshi heritage, mutton is often on the menu. Not necessarily because it can be a cheaper cut of meat, but, as Rez explains, it's often seen as more desirable. For us, it's, it's that dish that you're always going to find whenever you go to an occasion, whether it's a wedding or just like a family gathering, it's always going to be there. It's like the epitome of um, 
dishes, I would say, or um, the meat dishes. So that's right at the top, basically. That's like the top of the pyramid, the best. For the meat, food. yeah. Really? Yeah, and I think it's the flavor of it as well. I think it's a bit more stronger than lamb, than baby lamb. And, um, and I think it's the color. I think it's a combination of things, but it just, from my experience when cooking it, it makes the curry a lot more richer. There's a real, there's a real depth of flavor there as well. We spend uh, a couple of hours making it, I would say. So what we do is just um, we prepare the sauce first. I think a lot of people prepare the meat first, but we prepare the sauce first. So it's like the onions, the garlic, the ginger. We use our spices. We cook it for like an hour um, until the you know onions are basically just like slow cook braised. Slow cook braised, exactly. That's how we do it. And you can either have it with uh, tomatoes or. Um, potatoes i think other i think it's different with different families and they use different spices as well but we just use like a simple four spice blend that we create and we just we stick with that and we've found that it gives the best sort of flavors i think less is more you know without dissing my friends mums curries and stuff i've been to their houses sometimes and sometimes they've use so many spices that actually it smells really nice and fragrant they put garam masala and all this other stuff but it's just so complex right and you don't need it to be like that yeah. to be flavoursome. And so while high-end producers may be returning to the meat, there are communities in England that never stopped eating mutton. You might say that these communities are continuing an English tradition as old as the birth of capitalism. Bangladeshi or Caribbean curry mutton and the Turkish Adana kebab are potentially far more traditionally English than a cheeseburger or a bowl of cornflakes. been listening to episode two of the full english in this episode we've covered the birth of capitalism and the taste for mutton in england next we're covering the dark histories of tea and sugar so make sure to subscribe to the full english wherever you get your podcasts this show was made by me lewis bassett you can follow the full english on twitter and instagram at full eng pod music for the show is provided by forest dlg you can find him on twitter and insta at forest dlg massive thanks to our guests you can find details about them and their work in the show notes and there's tons of extra content over at patreon.com forward slash full english if you sign up as a subscriber you'll be helping us make new episodes on everything from how coal mining shaped our taste for bread to the legacy of lent at our dinner tables relevant to this show is a recipe for boiled mutton with oysters so go check that out as well that's patreon.com forward slash full english thanks so much for listening Thank you.